Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Actually, I'm thinking a lot about Pesach, and um, I just got back from Japan. I was very lucky. Um, some people flew us to Japan, and I was there for Sakura. Sakura is when all the cherry blossoms are blooming. And in fact, in Japan, on the peak cherry blossom blooming day, they get on the radio and they say, it's time. It's the peak day. And everyone comes out onto the street and gathers to see the trees. So I didn't know what was more moving, the, the trees or the fact that everybody came out to see the trees. When I think about a cherry blossom branch, I'm mystified. You know, the rabbis talk about how um, it's always the darkest before the dawn. I'm sure you've heard something like that. Cherry blossom branch, too, also looks positively dead before it's... Have you ever seen a cherry blossom branch before it starts blooming? It looks absolutely dead. You would throw it away. And then within a second, there's a bud. And then it comes into full bloom. So I'm really interested in leaving Egypt. I'm interested in it as a spiritual category. I'm interested in it as a political category. And I'm very interested, as were the rabbis, in when did we leave? And what does it mean to leave? And what were the conditions that forced us to leave? And what kept us there? Right? You with me? Mm -hmm. Right? It's actually so relevant that it's it's almost uh, overwhelming. If we really stop to think about it, as opposed to like this Israelites marching out, And we really think about it as a spiritual category and a political category of when do we know it's enough? How do we have the awareness to know something is enough? What what allows us to leave? What encourages us to leave? So I brought way too much. I always do this. I brought all these different midrash. They do relate to creation, revelation, but especially redemption, what we call the leaving Yitziat Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt. And I want to start with the conditions um, that, that were a part of slavery. Like slavery, not just a taskmaster hitting somebody. That's easy. We can get that. I want to talk about con- different kinds of conditions, what it means to be in a narrow place. Does it sound good? Then let's start all together, and then maybe we'll break into Chavruta. Take one and pass it down, please. This is from Safaria. Do you guys know Safaria? Life-changing. And it printed it really big letters, so you're in luck. First, we're going to look at um, just the Torah, okay? And we're going to look at a series of midrash, a series of commentaries on this Torah. So would somebody read, it can be Hebrew or English, um, from Shemot, from Exodus. Please, say your name also again. Judy. Hi, Judy, okay. And I'm reading in English. Excellent. No choice here. Afterward, it's never too late. And Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Very famous line. Okay? Don't read ahead. It won't make sense. Okay? Very famous line. They say, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? Vayomer paro. 
What does he say? I don't know Pharaoh. I don't know who he is. I, God, Pharaoh says, I don't know God, exactly. Bidiuk. I, I don't know who this God is. So it's not that he says no. Pharaoh says, I don't even know what you're talking about. Right? I, I, don't even know, I don't even know what you're talking about. By the way, what is the question Moshe asks at the burning bush? He says, who am I to go? Here we have two different poles of response. Someone asks you to do a wholly difficult thing. You may become too small. Who am I to do this? You may become very defensive. I never heard of this. What is this? Right? Pure disdain and pure humility. Right? So the rabbis are fascinated, as they always are, and they say, oh, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should, that I should let Israel go? And they create an entire narrative around this moment, this one verse. By the way, it's one of my favorite midrash. I do say that about a lot of midrash, but this is truly one of my favorite. It's hilarious, and I cut it way, way down, but it's worth reading the whole thing. Anyway, we're going to read this one together, and then we'll see how it goes. So I called it the files of Pharaoh. Would somebody like to read? Let's just go around. How about that? That day was Pharaoh's reception day, when all the kings from the west and the east came to honor him, bringing gifts of crowns with which to crown him, the king of the world, king over all other kings. So what day does Moses show up um, to ask Pharaoh to let the people go? What, what day is it? What day is it? Like, if you had to guess, if you had to call this day something. Maybe it's his birthday. Good, right. It's inauguration day. It's coronation day. It's, it's a fancy day. Okay? By the way, if you have any thoughts or comments, you can just jump in and say it. That's how we do this. We're going to, you know, go from thing to thing. Okay. Keep going. After the kings had crowned him, Moses and Aaron were still standing at the door of Pharaoh's palace. His servants came in and reported, two old men are standing at the gate. Pharaoh said, let them come up. So we got these two old schleppers, right? <laughs> And do they look fancy? No. Are they dressed for the party? No. Okay. Okay, next reader. When Moses and Aaron came up, all the kings saw that the two seemed like ministering angels. Seeing that, the fear of the two fell upon all of the kings, every one of them, and a shaking and a trembling, a shudder of awe seized each of them, so that they removed the crowns from their heads and bowed down to Moses and Aaron. Okay, so a stir goes through the room. Okay, keep going, please. All the while, Pharaoh sat and looked at Moses and Aaron, expecting that they too wished to crown him and present a triumphant face. I'm not allowed to talk about our current president, am I? <laughs> okay, probably not. I'll skip that. Yeah. They did not even I'm from San Francisco. <laughs> you know. Forget that. Yeah, go ahead. But Pharaoh asked, who are you? They replied, the ambassadors of the Holy One. So let's just look at these two worlds coming together. Pharaoh is waiting for accolades and gifts. And they're waiting. And they don't even so much as give him a salute. Right? And then Pharaoh's like, okay, so who are you? And they say, we're, for, we're ambassadors of, of the Holy One. How do you think Pharaoh's going to react? Right? Does that, does that translate for Pharaoh? No, because he doesn't even know who God is. He doesn't know. He hasn't said that yet, but he doesn't know. Right, okay. So go ahead. What, Pharaohs, what do you seek? They, God says, let my people go. All right, so that's right from Torah. Okay. At this, Pharaoh became angry, saying, who is the Lord that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? Has he not sense enough to send me a crown? And you who come to me with mere words expect me to obey? I don't know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. So why, So what's the motive so far of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's response there? In Torah, where Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let them go. I never heard of this God. What, what's he upset about? Didn't get a crown. Where's my valentine? And by the way, you came to me with what instead of a crown? Words. Words. Psst. Words. <laughs> right? Now, by the way, our God is the only God who creates the world with words. Not by forming and mushing, but with words. And we know words create worlds. That actually, Moses and Aaron are giving the most holy thing, and by the way, an opportunity, nevertheless, 
right? But he said, I'm not going to let Israel go. It gets better. Okay, next reader. Then he added, but wait, I will search my records. This is the best. Pharaoh's like a DMV worker now. He's like, okay, wait, wait. I never heard of this guy, but wait. Let me let me look in the files. <laughs> this is real. I'm not. I didn't write this. The rabbis wrote this. This is. A, okay, go ahead. And he went into his divine archives and he brought out a list of divinities, which he proceeded to read: the god of Moab, the god of Ammon, the god of Zidon, and so forth. Finally, he decreed. You see, I looked for the name of your god in my archives. And I did not find it. It's comedy. I looked, and I looked alphabetical, and Holy One is not in here. And there's no crown. So clearly, right? I, I, want, you, I want us to really enjoy this, and now I also want us to feel an increasing sense of tragedy. Because this is Pharaoh, who's in charge of all of Israel, and who has the, is the only author of Egypt. And this is the way he thinks. Is this someone who can consider possibility? Is this someone who could consider anything out of the files? By the way, might there be times in our lives when we have files and we're afraid to make new files? Or maybe not look in the files, right? Right? Okay, let's keep going. Moses and Aaron said to Pharaoh, are the living to be found among the dead? The divinities in your records are dead. But our God is a living king, the king of the universe. So they're fighting back. They're like, you're not going to see our God in the history book. Our God is living. Okay, it gets funnier. Next reader, please. And Pharaoh asked, is he young or old? How old? How many cities has he subdued? How many provinces has he conquered? How long has it been since he ascended the throne? You, it's hilarious, right? But can I just tell you something? I apply for funding all the time. And they want to know how many people showed up, right? And, and this is how we think. We were just talking about this over lunch, right? What's the proof that something holy is happening? How long was the program? How much did it cost? How many clicks, right? We're sort of obsessed with proof. I was saying to Shmuley earlier um, that... Um, in Silicon Valley, where I am, I even gave a drosh called the opposite of scale. Because uh, scale, first of all, it assumes that scale is good. And we're seeing now, of course, with, with Facebook, and you know, that there's a, when you go really big, there's huge consequences. But even without that, there's this idea that if I got a million clicks, that must be amazing. But I was saying to Rabbi Shmuley, um, maybe, maybe I watched a cat video yesterday, but I forgot it the next day. Versus, I bet when you were young, a teacher said something to you that you never forgot. And you never told anybody about it, but it changed your life. And therefore, it probably changed the life of your children, and possibly your children's children. Now, that is immeasurable. Nobody notes it as proof. And yet, are we going to say that that comment that the teacher made is less powerful than the cat video with the million clicks? So I just want us to notice, we've we, we got to make fun of Pharaoh, but we also have to recognize how susceptible we are to trying to catalog and prove things in demonstrable ways. Actually, I like to say, and again, Shmuley and I were talking about this, the concept of kedusha, of something being holy in itself, means that you don't even have to have the comment that goes lador vador from generation to generation. It can just be holy. Each of us can just be holy just because we are made in the image of God. We don't have to prove it at all, and we don't have to do anything at all. That's, that's the antithesis of slavery. So Pharaoh is going to be completely on the measurable side and in your life, I want you to recognize times when you are measuring and just know that you don't have to measure, that that is not the only way to demonstrate value, that there might be another way or there might be no way at all. The, the best way may be to not measure it in that moment. 
Okay, so let's keep going. Um, they replied, our God, God's strength and might fill the universe. God was before the world was created, and God will be after the world ends. God formed you and gave you the breath of life. So, you know, Pharaoh's asking these, like, narrow questions, and they're responding with poetry. God fills the universe! God was before and after us. God is infinite. God is ineffable. God gave you the breath of life. It's like a tefillah. It's like a prayer, right? Pharaoh's not going to be able to understand that language, probably. Okay, what does he say? Uh, Pharaoh, what are his notable deeds? Moses and Aaron. God stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. God forms mountains and hills, covers heaven with clouds, brings down rain and dew. It's so beautiful. Isn't this beautiful? Those about to give birth makes life and gives life. God removes kings and sets up kings. God, God, God makes fruit. You know, Pharaoh's looking for like what cities did he conquer? Did the, she conquer this God? You know, how many armies does this God have? And they say, this God makes fruit. This God makes dew. Right? Okay, go ahead. Pharaoh replied, from the very outset you have spoken lies. I am Lord of the universe. I created myself as well as the Nile. Your God, I have no idea who he is. Who is the Lord that I should listen to his voice? I am the Lord of the universe. I created myself as well as the Nile. I am God. Your God, I don't know who it is. What is the real problem Pharaoh has with Moses and Aaron's God? Can't see him. Can't know him. Beautiful. But there's something else. What does Pharaoh think he is? He thinks he's God. And, and it doesn't matter. They could have proved a million different things. They could have brought lists and armies and crowns. And it wouldn't matter because actually Pharaoh wanted to run the narrative. He wanted it to go through his files. He, I am God. I created the Nile. And that's why I won't pay attention to your God. So how does this relate to our larger conversation about leaving Egypt and what it takes to leave Egypt? Have you ever come up against a Pharaoh? Have you ever been a Pharaoh? Let's talk about it for a minute. Well, I'm noticing <clears throat> that Pharaoh is actually directing the course of the conversation. Yes. And Moses and Aaron are falling in line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pharaoh asks, what are his notable deeds? Yep. And Moses and Aaron answer. Yeah. I mean, maybe poetically. Yeah. But they answer. Yeah. So they're getting even caught yeah. in acknowledging yeah. the validity of the question. Yeah, beautiful. So one first step yeah. is simply to disavow the, abil the, uh, the legitimacy that's of, right. of the conversation. Yeah. And that isn't even yeah. happening here. That's yet. right. That's right. And, and, of course, you remember the story of leaving Egypt, or you, know, you remember it from Passover, and we have and we're going to discover different ways people try to come up against this monolithic power. Right? We won't study the very violent and frightening story of Moses killing the Egyptian. But the, remember, there's an Egyptian taskmaster who's beating a slave, and Moses kills him, right? Now, the Midrash will say that Moses looks this way and that, and he doesn't see any justice system, and he doesn't see any police, and he doesn't see anyone in Israel standing up to help, and he actually sees that everyone in Israel is accepting this as normal, and he's so furious that he kills him. <coughs> That's another way. Right? It's, not a, it's not a way that we emulate, but that's not following Pharaoh's lead, right? That's a violent way to get out, right? And in fact, Moses will be blamed for that. There's another beautiful midrash that says when Moses is arguing, he doesn't want to die. Remember, Moses is, um, dies before he gets into the promised land, and he has all these arguments with God, and God finally wins the argument by saying, um, you, you killed someone. And Moses says, but, but you kill people all the time, God. What's the difference? And God says, yeah, but I make life. Can you make life? And Moses says, I see what you mean. 
So I, I bring it up because, and then of course we have the midwives, we have Pharaoh's daughter. There's all these different places where people are, Aviva Zornberg says that um, in Egypt there was only one narrative and Pharaoh was the only author. And that's what made it so terrifying. And by the way, that's what all dictators do, right? They, they want to have a single narrative. Anyone who runs counter to them uh, is suspect, right? So the Israelites weren't allowed to read Torah according to the rabbis. Why? Because they might get ideas. We'll talk more about it, but what you're seeing here, exactly as you said, is Pharaoh is dictating the terms of the conversation. Yes? I disagree. Uh -huh. Pharaoh's asking questions based on what a human would do. When, mm -hmm. did, when did he ascend? How many, how many cities has he conquered? How many mm -hmm. armies does mm -hmm. he have? Mm -hmm. and Aaron and Moses are replying much higher level, much yeah. higher plane. Yeah, yeah. Created yeah. the universe, creates fruit, brings, brings uh -huh. rain and dew. Yeah. Things that man cannot do. Yeah. So they, they may be responding to the question. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I don't think they're giving him a direct response to the question that's asked. They're diverting. Nice. Nice. That's a, those are two great reads. Two great reads. Yeah, and, and there's also an, an interesting yeah. uh, being self-reflective. Yeah. Uh, one narrative, one author. Yeah. Um, you know, how do uh, how does some of the Jewish community see our own story? Say a little more. Well, that you know, who you know the I'm, I'm not going to assume that all around this table you know see Torah written as. Uh, a human document trying to create uh, a culture around a uh, around this God, but it is written um, as one author. So therefore, but you know, uh, even traditionally, the more traditional you go, the more there's an there's an acceptance of multiple voices, right? So it does all come from Shemayim. It all all comes from heaven. But it's like this word and this word. You don't end up with a there. You, yeah. you don't end up with a fundamentalism. I think just to push back, yeah. you know, because since yeah. we're both rabbis, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure if. Yeah. If, if that, you know, reflects mm -hmm. uh, a fundamentalist community. Uh huh. Uh huh. Right. So is it possible to take Torah itself and essentially turn it into a repressive thing? Is that possible? We say probably is, right? You could misuse religion the way you misuse anything powerful. Does that mean all of religion leads us to repression? I, I sure hope not, because I have to change careers. <laughs> Other things before we move on? I have so much to do. Let's keep going. This is a second text. First, let's read the Torah. Who, who's, who, who read last? Oh, OK, Shmuley. You're up, it's Shmote. When Pharaoh speaks to you and says, produce your marvel, you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it down before Paro. It shall turn into a serpent. Do you guys remember this part? Okay. What do you say? From the movie. Oh, oh, that's so funny. I don't know the movie. Okay. So Moshe and Aaron came before Paro and did just as the Lord commanded Aaron cast down his rod, rod in the presence of Paro and his courtiers, and it turned into a serpent. Then Paro also summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same with their spells. Okay, and notice also is like an additional word. You don't, that's, this is what the rabbis are going to be picking up on. Why do we have the word also in there twice? Because we don't have, every word in Torah is precious, right? Okay, so let's start. We have a couple... This is something that I wrote. It's a little short piece of something. Um, keep going, Shmuley, please, Rabbi right, Shmuley. The rabbis notice that what Paro says is, Tanu lechem mutar. Not give us a miracle or show us a miracle, but lechem, show yourselves a miracle. So when Pharaoh says, I, I need to see something, he doesn't say, I need to see it. He says, why don't you show yourselves what you can do? You know, why don't you show it to yourself? Is that... Empowering, condescending, insidious. What, it, what is that? What's that moment like? Have you ever had someone say that to you? You could prove it to yourself. Well, it shows that he, Pharaoh has no faith in them. Right. Go prove yourself to me. 
Yeah, or I don't even care. Right. Yeah. In fact, I think that's what I said. Keep going. Paro is being, no, did I do that right? Yeah. Yeah. Paro is being condescending, laughing in this moment. You two are back? Fine, let's get over it. Over with. Let's get this over with. Show us what you've got. Better yet, show yourselves. Go ahead and prove something to yourselves, for you will not be able to prove anything to us. Now let's go to the rabbis. Um, next reader. Anyone can do it. Uh, then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers. Then did Pharaoh begin to mock Moses and Aaron and crow at them like a crow at them like a rooster, saying to them, "So these are the signs of your God. Um, it is usual for people to take goods to a place which has a shortage of them, but does one import fish into Akko?" Apparently, there's a lot of fish in Akko. Are you not aware that all kinds of magic are within my province? He then asked for children to be brought from school, and they also performed these wonders. Moreover, he called also his wife, and she did thus, for it says, then Pharaoh also called. Why also? Because his wife, whom he called also, did this. And also the Egyptian magicians did the same. Why the word gum? Also, even children of four and five years of age, whom he called, did likewise. So, so what happens? So they do their miracle, their parlor trick, and what happens? Kids can do it also. Everybody, can, do it also. everybody can come in and do it. Yeah, 400 people doing the same thing. Talk to me about Egypt and what Egypt is like. What, what does that bring up? What is slavery like when you produce your marvel and eh, everyone does that? That's special. Talk to me a little about that. How is it destructive? Let's say it that way. Well, it's belittling. Yeah. 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 Let's go back to what we were saying about Kedusha, about someone just being holy for being alive. Do you see how this is now? This is really the opposite. You're only holy insofar, you're only worthy insofar as you can produce something. And by the way, it better be something not everybody else can do. Because if everybody could do it, you're now not special anymore and you're like a hamster. You know, you're just running, right? And we see, we see this in our culture. This is not so, is this so foreign to us? Right? We almost feel bad for Moses and Aaron because they're the ones who asked for this trick to begin with, right? Like they needed something to show. And, um, or God tells them you're going to have something to show. And, and we're, we kind of wonder why God is, is reducing this to parlor tricks, card tricks. You know? But maybe it has to do with they had to start speaking Pharaoh's language a little bit just to try to get themselves out. But you, you see how they also have to extract themselves. And I think what you said earlier of like not giving in to the terms of the argument, right? And I love what the rabbis do with this. With just the word gam also, they create a scene now where, the, where Moshe and Aaron are, are really degraded. See? I didn't promise that this would be upbeat, guys. <laughs> I, I, want, I think I want to move to another text. You're welcome to read the rest on your own. Um, any last questions? This I love. I really love it. Take, please. Ooh. And one. Here we have... Um, Here, here we have another person who tries to become free. Totally different scenario. It's not Moses. It's not Aaron. It's the least, I like to call her the least likely girl in the room. I won't say Ivanka. Um, it's, it's someone who um, is the most central in the palace. The least likely to cause a rupture in Pharaoh's Egypt, right? Um, one of my teachers, um, Noam, says that it would be like Hitler's daughter 
going and like hiding Jews in her basement. Because who is it? Pharaoh's daughter, who the rabbis called Batsya. Do you remember? How does Moses survive? She takes him out of the river. Great. So, so the, the setup here is I had never thought about her. I had always thought about her as actually rather two-dimensional. A pretty princess, out of the goodness of her heart, saves this slave child. The rabbis are not satisfied with that, and they come up with reasons. What is her motive? What drives her? It's not just altruism. Something must drive her. The rabbis are always looking for a more complicated answer. Okay, so shall we read? Who was the last reader? I forget. Oh, yeah. Okay, next. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile while her maidens walked along the Nile. She spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw that it was a child, a boy crying. She, she took pity on it and said, this must be a Hebrew child. What do you think the questions are? Don't read ahead. What, what do you think the questions are that the rabbis are going to ask? What's going to start them on this conversation of like, who is this Batya and why is she doing this? Is there, there's a hint here. Well, she had a feeling of pity. Good. It's really basic though. Like, what if I said... I don't know, what's the fanciest hotel in town here? The Biltmore. What if I said the daughter of the owner of the Biltmore, who lived there permanently, what's the name of a river here? Is there a river here? <laughs> the salt Desert. River. <laughs> there may have been some decades ago. She took a bath in the Salt River one day. What would you say? She must have been misdirected. Yeah, why isn't she bathing in the Biltmore? Why did she leave the Biltmore? So now we're talking again about leaving Mitzrayim, leaving the narrow place. Where does the end of slavery begin? What are the oppressive forces and what are the freeing forces? And it begins with this idea that she left. So let's go. We have Sforno. Will you read? I didn't get your name. I'm Shirley. Hi, Shirley. She had a view of the river, her room in the palace bordering on the embankment. No doubt, royal etiquette did not permit an Egyptian princess to actually bathe in the river. You can skip that rest part. So, so actually, she's going against etiquette. One of Sforno Italian commentators says she shouldn't be allowed to do that's That's gauche. Like, why is she out there bathing in the river? Right? How was she different than all of our rebellious children? She's going to do what she wants to do, regardless of what custom would have. So you think she's just, she's like getting a tattoo and, and taking a dip. Yeah, all right, fine. That's fine. That's a, that's a legitimate read. She's a rebel. Rebel Batya. But uh, let's see what happens after that. Let's see where the rabbis take it. Okay, Shirley, hit me. And all the Egyptians went down to bathe in the river on account of the terrible heat. So what, so why is everybody bathing in the river now? First it was she just we're not sure why she's leaving, but now here's one motive. What's going on? It's super hot. It's not, it's not a deep read, but it's, you know, it's there. It's hot. Okay, go ahead. And Batia, Pharaoh's daughter, went also to bathe in the river on account of the fearful heat, and her maidens and all the women of Egypt were walking about by the side of the river. Okay, that one's simple. It's hot. Sefer HaYashar. Okay, let's see Chizkuni. Next reader. These are now trying to figure out why she's bathing in the river. Uh, and he's Cooney and her servant maids walking, Rashi, while interpreting the word as meaning walking towards her death, quotes a traditional explanation in the Talmud Sota 12, according to which it is short for being on a path which leads to death as in Genesis 25:32, where Esau is quoted as saying, here I am pursuing a path that will result in my death. Okay, Let, let's just stop for a second. Um, Rashi, 11th century commentator, is quoting the Talmud, which is using a technique whereby you take a word that's in one place in the Torah 
And if it's used in a different way in another place in the Torah, it can help you understand the first case. And so what their understanding is, there's another place where someone uses that verb to say, I'm walking to death. And so now this Midrash has taken a dark turn saying that she's actually walking out to her death. What do you think that means? Why are the rabbis suggesting that Batya is going to her death? She might get punished by her father. Beautiful. It's not very, you know, it's not actually, I mean, it's not just getting a tattoo, or I don't know how controversial that is, but like, I won't let my kids do it, but, but it, it actually is, is, you know, her father's a pretty tough guy, right? Maybe he doesn't want his kids out of the palace. So maybe that's why. What's another reason? Is there another reason? Cutting off one identity. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Maybe she's casting off the whole thing. Yeah, nice. Nice. Anything else come to mind? Do we yeah. have any idea how old Batsy is at this point? Uh, ages in Torah are so hard. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. She's going to disobey a, a direct order for father by taking Moses. There, ex- that's where we're going. Exactly. And that's going to be much worse than leaving the palace, right? But that's part of her march towards death. Ah, beautiful. Very nice. All right, let's keep reading. Right, or, yeah, let's see. Mm -hmm. The scholar in the Talmud has the servant maids warning the daughter of Pharaoh, who was actually going to use the waters of the Nile as a mikvah, ritual bath, in order to cleanse herself from the desecrations that were a daily occurrence in her father's palace. Let's just pause there for a second. So now why is she going? Is she going because it's hot? No. Is she going to be independent? Why is she going? Purification. So we have religious terms of being purified, but how might we understand that today? Have you ever lived in an environment that was toxic? Mm -hmm. And it colored everything in your world, right? Or maybe maybe it was materialistic, Right? Maybe it was, we say, idol worship, I, I like to move away from idol worship because I feel like then everybody just thinks I don't have to have a Buddha statue in my yard and I'm good. Idol worship means valuing something over human life, treating people as things, treating people as if they have no holiness in them, treating the land as if it has no holiness in it. Right? So... Maybe she had to clean herself from the idea that everything is found in the files. Maybe she has to clean herself from the idea that power is the only thing that matters. That's a lot of cleaning. So the rabbis introduced this idea of mikvah. Okay. By warning her that even when other people might disregard the king's command, Surely his own daughter would not dare do so. They warned that by doing so, she would condemn herself to death by execution. So this is what you were saying. Like, you're actually going to save a Hebrew baby. Like, are you crazy? Your own father said they have to die. Right? So she's going right into the eye of the storm. Yeah. Comments or thoughts? I'm sorry? She's a teenager. Um, let's skip the next one because I think it's what we just is similar to what we just read and let's go to the Shemot Rabbah which I think is stunning on the last page next reader to bathe in the river to cleanse herself from the idols of her father's palace the rabbis say that Pharaoh's daughter was leprous and went down to, to bathe but as soon as she touched the ark she became healed for this reason did she take pity upon Moses and loved him with exceeding love? So now what is it? Why does she go down to the river? Is it hot? No, she's, she's diseased. diseased. She's ill. Why is she ill? Well, leprosy, I mean, I don't know what the Hebrew is, but maybe she spoke 
Sometimes we connect leprosy to motzira, like to to lashon hara, right? Yeah, good. Why else, from context, do you think she's ill? Being kept closed in the palace and not going outside. And Maybe she, fresh air. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. More. Do you think she's finding out who her father is? What would it be like to have a father that tells the people to throw all their babies in the river? Could you be healthy and well with a father like that? Could you be healthy and well in a society like that? What kind of society allows babies to be thrown in the river? And actually, one of the things I think about all the time is when Pharaoh says to throw all the baby boys in the river, there's no protest. There's no newspaper article. There's no social media feed. There's no conversation. There's a deafening silence. Pharaoh has convinced everyone that there is one story, and he is the only author. Except for the big one. That's next. And Batya. And, by the way, Moses' mother. You have these tiny, tiny zeeves, tiny sparks. But so you see, the rabbis say she's ill. I think, there's, I think everyone in Egypt was ill. And, my, and, and what's, what's beautiful to me is we start this story by thinking, oh, Batia, she's so gracious and generous and she saves baby Moshe. Who saves who? Who saves who? The minute she touches the ark, she became healed. And by the ark, do they mean his basket? Exactly, the teva is what they say. His basket, right? And by the way, I say, for this reason, she, take, she learns how to have compassion and love. That's the first thing that happens when she becomes healed. When you stop treating people like things and you see the holiness in somebody and you are able to be connected to them, you, then you can have compassion and you can love. That's what it means to be healed. What it means to be sick is you don't know how to have compassion and you don't know how to love. That's a form of illness where you could throw people away and nobody would say anything. That's Batya. Thoughts, questions? Yes, Rabbi. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful, yeah. Ooh, I love it. I love it. And that Moses has always had that ability to yes. turn leprous to not leprous. And that ah. Oh, it's beautiful. Write that up. Yes. <laughs> this is also a, a, a story in the Bible in which God has a direct hand in what's going on. Yeah. Are we assuming free will? Because later on we have yeah. hardened. Yes. Is, is, is this a setup, uh, Hashem, yes. to, to, to do this story to create a Jewish people? Yes, yes. This is one of the biggest questions in Midrash, and the rabbis are obsessed with it. And they actually say, you know what? It, when God, Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh's heart, you're actually giving reason for an Epicurus, uh, for a non-believer to... Make a charge. Like, why, why are you putting this in the Torah, right? It's discriminating. I believe in free will in Torah for sure. I don't actually think God is even omnipotent in Torah. I follow my teacher, Rabbi Brad Artson. Nowhere is God omnipotent. God has frustrated the entire Torah trying to make us do things, and we won't do them. And uh, the short version of the answer to your question is, God hardens, Pharaoh hardens his own heart five times, and then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so there becomes this, and I believe in tshuva, but I think at a certain point, if you run a routine again and again and again, it may be impossible to come out of it. It's very, very difficult to retract it. What do you guys want to do? Do you want to do one, a little bit more? Okay. Yes. I brought you good ones, didn't I? Yes.
Okay, here you go. I love this one too. I brought, I made 30, because I didn't know. It came all the way from San Francisco. I figured I might as well. Um, here is, now we're gonna look a little bit at the midwives. And again, my question is always, what drives the courageous people? What gives them the courage? Where does freedom come from? What does oppression look like? And where does freedom come from? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. By the way, you should use all these at your Seder. I have to have one minute now on Seder. If you go through the Haggadah and you don't really talk about the story, the basic, the Haggadah assumes you know the story, that you remember it, which some people do and some people really don't. And if you just look at the commentaries on the story and eat the food of the story and sing the song of the story, it's like going to a Broadway show where there's a stage setting and props that are just laying on the stage and you don't know the play. The mo throw the Haggadah away and tell the story of leaving <coughs> Egypt. You can use these if you want, but just tell, I'm telling you, just tell the real story in your own words. That's the most important thing. Save the fancy stuff for later, once you really know the story. That's the most important thing. Okay, so now, now we're gonna talk about the midwives really fast, because I don't have that much time. Who was reading? Okay, we're going around. Abraham planted a tamarisk at Beersheba and invoked there the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So Abraham goes to Beersheba, and he, this is like a throwaway. Who cares? He plants a tree. What's the big deal? Well, the rabbis think it's a very big deal. Everything is a very big deal. Okay. Rashi on Genesis. And Abraham planted an Esher. That's the tamarisk. Mm -hmm. Rob and Samuel differ as to what this was. One said it was an orchard from which to supply fruit for the guests of the meal. Wait, I want to see. I don't know if I put all this in, but uh, yeah, yeah. So um, it, wasn't an, it wasn't one tree. What was it? It was a whole orchard. Come on. Okay, next. The other said it was an inn for lodging and for all kinds of food. It wasn't just an orchard. It was a B&B, Airbnb. Uh-huh. And we can speak of planting an inn, but we find the expression planting used of tents, as it is said. And he shall plant the tents of his house. They're using that same trick I told you about before. Something from Daniel relates, helps us understand something here. That's how they're making their proof. But anyway, they, it wasn't just fruit orchard. It was an inn. Okay, next. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. Said Rish Lakish. Infer from this that he made an orchard and planted in it every kind of delicacy. So now it's like hipster orchard with like very special heirloom, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Next reader. Next reader. Do not read Vakira. Vayikra, yep, exactly. And he called it, but Vakira. Vayikri. He caused it to be called. Infer from this that Abraham caused every traveler to call the name of the Holy One. How is this done? After they had eaten and drunk, they would stand up to bless Abraham, whereas Abraham would say to them, Have you eaten from mine? Have you eaten from that which belongs to the God of the universe? Therefore, praise and bless him who spoke. And the world came into it. Don't read ahead. This is so beautiful to me, this midrash. I want to explain it to you. First of all, it's really helped me. This is the midrash I used when I started the kitchen. I thought of it all the time. Because what happens is these people are wandering around in the desert, and he has an inn, and he invites them in, and he feeds them. And so what do they say? Thank you, Abraham. You're amazing. And what does Abraham say? Don't thank me. Let me teach you about this God. And let me teach you what a bracha is. Let me teach you what a blessing is and how to bless. And this is how he brings blessing into the world. Rabbi Shmuley, we were saying before, whenever somebody comes to a new community, of course they want to ask, what's in it for me? Of course they want to be fed. But our role as community members and as teachers is to say, yes, I'll feed you, of course. And now let me teach you. Um, about a blessing. Let me teach you how to elevate what you just ate into something holy. You see what Abraham is doing? 
He's inventing religion. He's doing it the easy way, through stomachs, through hospitality, through kindness. He doesn't say, hey guys, here's a pamphlet. He says, come in and eat. Okay, let's keep going. And Abraham planted an eshel, a tamarisk tree. Rabbi Judah said, eshel means an orchard, the word meaning ask, sha'al, for whatever you wish. So eshel, which is a tamarisk, also means an orchard, and it also is related to the Hebrew word for to ask. Okay? Figs, grapes, or pomegranates. Rabbi Nehemiah said, eshel means an inn, the word connoting ask whatever you desire, meat, wine, or so now this is just like this magic hospitality place where you can eat whatever you want. It's beautiful. Okay. Rabbi Azaria said in the name of Rabbi Judah, Eshel means a court of law, as in the verse, now Shaul was standing in Judea under the Eshel. So now what is it? Is it an Airbnb? What is it? It's a courtroom. Why? Because Abraham did not just plant a tree. He did not just make an orchard. He did not just have an inn. He had a full-on legal system. Right? Of course he did. Okay, keep going. Oh, no, skip this one because we kind of talked about this already. And then, um, oh, God, this is so beautiful. Look at Breshit Rabbah, 54.6. The Haggadot about Abraham's hospitality are introduced in connection with the word eshel, alif shin lamed, which is said to stand for achila, food, shtia, drink, and levia, escort, provided by Abraham. So these are the three things he provided, okay? In Bereshit Rabbah, the statement, based upon the literal meaning of Ashel, which is tamarisk, is found that the middle bar in the midst of the boards of the tabernacle was made of this tamarisk. This is so, so beautiful. And it relates to what I was saying before about someone who teaches you something that gets passed down and passed down and passed down, but you never quite measure it. They say he planted a tree. Where does this tree end up? In the holy tabernacle, in the Mishkan. This, this board gets passed down from generation to generation. It gets sneaked out of Egypt when we leave Egypt and is on Yaakov's back and goes all the way into the wilderness and becomes, talk about a building campaign. It becomes the center board of the Mishkan. It's the, it's the spine that hospitality, that legality, that bracha, that DNA that Abraham sets generations later will become the spine of the whole community. Isn't that beautiful? It's really thrilling. Um, and then even the Zohar has to add, it came to him from paradise. Meaning that that tamarisk that he planted was created before the beginning of the world. So it's eternal. It's eternal. Why am I telling you all this? We're talking about Shmot and leaving Egypt. Well, next reader, Rabbi Shmuley. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, saying, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing, letting the boys live? You remember this story? It's a famous story. Okay. The midwife said to Pyro, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous. Before the midwife can come to them, they have given birth. And God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and increased greatly. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Okay. Anything you want to say about this, uh, Shmo, before we go on? I just want to remind you that the midwives stand up to Pharaoh, right? They call it the first conscientious objectors, right? That, that, that actually they feared God, meaning just what you said before. They didn't accept the Pharaoh's parameters of Pharaoh. They thought there must be something more. We can't respond to this. We must respond to this. So the question becomes, what gave them that koach and that courage? By the way, there's some traditions that read the midwives as Egyptian, and some that read them as Hebrew. Some say they're Egyptian. Yeah. You know what could have given them the courage? Yeah. The unusual fact yes. that Pharaoh even asked them, why have you done this? Oh. Killing them. Oh, interesting. There was their opening right there. Yeah. Normally you would think, 
Pharaoh would come, yeah. kill them, and be done and with kill them. them. Yeah. Because yeah. he asked the question. But they do they it first. The, the it's beautiful, but they do it first. They let the babies live first. That's true. But it's true that Pharaoh asked a question, which is, un I don't even know another time Pharaoh asked a question that's not rhetorical. I literally would have to look. I don't think he does. I have to go back and look at that some more. Okay, let's keep going. Sorry, we're in the bottom of page five, Shmot Rabbah, 115. And because the midwives feared God, uh, concerning them it is said, a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Praise women that fear God. Okay. And did not as the king of Egypt commanded. Right, they didn't do it. Okay. So we're, we're, we know that they didn't do it, and we know that they feared God, okay? But they saved the children alive. Now, since they did not fulfill Pharaoh's command, do we not know that they saved the children alive? Then why must the Bible tell us, and they saved yeah, so if it's already if we already know that because they they didn't they went against Pharaoh, why does it also need to say and they saved the children alive? What is that? Why is Torah bothering to tell us that? Well, it's not only to add praise to praise, for not only did they not fulfill his command, but even went beyond this and did deeds of kindness to the family. Isn't that beautiful? Go ahead. For those who were poor, the midwives would go to the houses of the rich to collect water and food and give them to the poor and thus keep alive their children. So not only did they not kill the babies, they were like Robin Hood, like going all around Egypt and helping people and, and giving money and giving resources. Okay, next reader. Another explanation of and the midwives feared God, they modeled their conduct on that of their ancestor Abraham. Oh, okay, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> of whom God testified, for now I know that you are a God-fearing man. They said, Abraham, our ancestor, peace be upon him, opened an inn, for he said, always theirs. <gasps> yes. So we're not like himself. And as for us, not only have we not wherewith to feed them, but we are even to slay them? No, we will keep them alive. So what gives them the koach? What gives them the strength or what gives them the um, idea to not follow Pharaoh? The modeling of Abraham. This, there's a family story that our great, 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 great grandfather used to help strangers. And he didn't even know them. And he would just keep them alive. And we, who are midwives, are supposed to kill the babies? The dissonance in that story is what allows them to open up another door in Egypt and say, no, it cannot be. That dissonance. So it is, um, it, it begins with Abraham, just like the, I'm thinking of just like the, uh, the, the Eshel, just like the Tamarisk board makes it into the Mishkan. The story of Abraham makes it all the way to the midwives, which, by the way, this is how Moshe lives. So think about the stories you tell this Pesach and this year, because you never know. They could scale. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.